As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome to The Athletic Football Show. Great show for you guys today. Nate Tice is going to be joining us a little bit later to do some X's and O's breakdowns of the conference championship games. Really looking forward to that. Before we do that, though, I am thrilled to welcome The Athletic's own Lindsay Jones to the program. Lindsay, how are you doing? I am great, Robert. How are you doing? I'm okay. <laughs> You're you know, okay. <laughs> it's it, it was a mixed day. You know, you wake up and you know there are certain people getting on helicopters and you're really happy about it. But then... I actually found out the hardest way. I had people tweeting at me that saw the news first. Philip Rivers retired today. Yeah. And it is really funny that so many people, multiple people today have said, you're the first person I thought of when that news happened. I am not a Chargers fan, nor a Colts fan. And I guess for whatever reason, the reasons are obvious. People just connect me to Philip Rivers. And I'll be honest. I'm not surprised. You know, this seemed like it was always possible. He's almost 40 years old. He's played a really long time. He's got a bunch of kids, obviously. He's got a job lined up as his his son's high school football coach or at his son's school. You know, this was always coming. But it still is kind of a bummer. Like, the fact that Phillip Rivers will not be in the NFL anymore and I don't get to watch Phillip Rivers play quarterback, that's sad to me. I'm, I'm a little upset about it. Yeah, it is. It is a sad day in the NFL. And look, there's going to be more retirements coming. I mean, we expect at some point, in the probably not too distant future, we'll hear something from Drew Brees. But, you know, but Philip Rivers, there was just so much joy in the way that he played, the way that he conducted everything about his NFL career. It was fun to watch him, unless you were a fan of the team that he was playing against that specific day. It was fun <laughs> to cover him, you know, from a reporter's perspective, just because he was so refreshing in terms of um, the his honesty and his availability and his accessibility. And, you know, and, and part of that was because I think of the market that he spent most of his career in, that he was really able to, you know, develop relationships with the reporters in San Diego. Um, but I think part of it, too, is just who Philip Rivers is. And, you know, you have to be careful in this business, in our business, of, you know, making too many assumptions about guys. Like, you never feel like you can, you should, you truly know who they are. But Philip Rivers is one of those guys that I think we know exactly 
who Philip Rivers is as a football player and certainly as a man and through everything that we've you know, we've known about him and read about him, what his teammates have said, what people in the San Diego community have said for years and years and years about him. So it's just it's just a tremendous loss, I think, for the entire NFL that he's no longer going to be part of our day to day lives. I don't think he's going to we're not going to see him on NFL network sets. We're not going to see him like tweeting. You know, he's going to go home to Alabama and which is such a bummer because he'd be amazing you know? on TV. He would be so, so good at TV and not just because of the personality. And I think that's what is important that I and something that I want to communicate. Philip Rivers is quirky. You know, there are all these silly things about Philip Rivers, his throwing motion and the way he talks and and all that. And that's all true. I remember talking to him, I want to say it was two years ago, when they had that really good season with the Chargers and they beat the Chiefs on that Thursday night game and it really looked like they were potential contender setting. They the had playoffs. that crazy, that crazy game against Baltimore the, where they played like 18 defensive backs and that was it. Y- yes. I mean, and so they, that year, and it was I remember talking to him after the regular season going into the playoffs. I wrote a story about how this might be his last chance. And we were talking, and it's just so apparent always, every conversation you have with him, that he can't help it. Like, this isn't an act. He just couldn't help but respond to guys in the moment and guys and the people in the stands. And this was all genuine. He just, there was no filter on Philip Rivers, there was no dimmer on Philip Rivers. And I always enjoyed that about him. But to me, it was way more than the quirks. And it was way more than him shot-putting footballs. He was legitimately a football genius. And the way that he played was indicative of that. When you talk to guys that know the game, he was on the same level as Manning, Brady, anybody from that cerebral, I see the game perspective. And that allowed him to be, in my opinion, outside of Manning, maybe the best anticipatory thrower in the history of modern football. And you would watch him let balls go three, four steps before guys were out of breaks because he understood defensive structure so well. And I think that's why he'd be so good at TV. Like having him explain the game with his personality, I always thought he'd be great at it. It just doesn't seem like we're going to get it. And beyond that, again, it's funny to laugh at Philip Rivers and the memes and the gifts. And he, he is aware of that too. He does know that. But as a football player, I think he will be eternally underrated. And yes. it's because of the shortcomings in the playoffs. I remember talking to him and he said this to me and I was really sad in the moment. He was talking about that 2007 AFC Championship game where he had the torn ACL, which is crazy in and of itself. And after that game, you know, every, they were all banged up that game. Uh, Latanian Tomlinson was hurt. They had a lot of guys that were struggling. And he said Norv Turner came up to them that ga- after that game and that a lot of guys were in tears because they knew how good that team was. And he told me, he said, I remember Norv saying, we're going to be in a bunch of these games and we haven't. We haven't been back and it just shows how fleeting this is. And that's it. You know, you think playoff success and how much it matters, but if you look at his playoff numbers compared to a guy like Ben Roethlisberger or even Eli Manning, they had those breaks. They had those moments where things went their way. If Marlon McCree doesn't fumble the ball against the Patriots in the 2006 playoffs, I think they can beat that Colts team, and I think they can win the Super Bowl that year. And, and if they, they do, often had the Colts number in the playoffs. I mean, yes. the, the best postseason performances of Rivers' career were in games against Peyton Manning. If you look at the numbers, they're almost identical with him and Roethlisberger and Eli in the postseason. Uh, Sam Motson from PFF tweeted at me today, their postseason grades and numbers are almost the exact same. And Ben Roethlisberger, the last time Ben Roethlisberger won a Super Bowl was 2008. They had the number one defense in the NFL. Yeah. If you look at defensive success over since 2006 when Philip Rivers took over, the Steelers are second in EPA per play after the Ravens. They had great defenses consistently every single year. If you look at EPA offensively, 
from and over that entire stretch. Rivers is sixth in EPA per play among quarterbacks over the last 15 years. The guys ahead of him are Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and Aaron Rodgers, and I some one other guy, Drew Brees. Those are the five guys ahead of him. That's it. Yeah, pretty good, pretty good quarterbacks. That's it. All-time guys, guys that you would probably put as maybe the five best quarterbacks of all time are in that conversation when we're done. This idea that because Phillip Rivers didn't have postseason success, which and I was looking at playoff records for coaches today, and if you look at that, a lot of great coaches. Andy Reid has a 533 playoff record. It's 50-50. When you get into the playoffs, anything can happen. For the most part, it's a toss-up unless you're Bill Belichick. Getting there and being great is the most important thing, and he was great year in and year out. From 2008 through 2010, he led the NFL in yards per attempt at a time when Brady, Manning, Rodgers, Breeze, all of those guys were playing. It's not as if he was a hanger-on among this generation of quarterbacks. At various stages in his career, he went toe-to-toe with every single one of those guys, and it just didn't end up working for him or happening for him in the postseason. And I think, I think that he is when... as good or better than any of the other quarterbacks from his draft class. And I absolutely think if we're putting the best football players in the Hall of Fame, a guy that coached that quarterbacked a top 10 offense 10 times in 14 years by DVOA and did never miss a snap, played 250 straight games, that guy belongs in the Hall of Fame to me. I think he is a fantastic quarterback and one of the more unique accomplished football players I got to watch up close and I firmly believe that with a couple different breaks a little bit of a different supporting cast at times especially later in his career we think about him in a different way it's gonna that hall of fame discussion in a couple years is gonna be so wild because the Eli conversation is gonna be really complicated I think Philip Rivers is a much stronger case just in terms of his career accomplishments because Eli's case hangs on the two Super Bowls which you know, I think there was a lot of ways that they were kind of fluky. You know, they were some pretty spectacular, like singular postseason games that got there, but in terms of the career. But voters typically have hinged these decisions so much on postseason success. And I just wonder at some point over the next five years before Philip Rivers becomes eligible for the first time, if some of that's going to shift. And, you know, there has been such a such a change in football discourse and how we how we talk about things like EPA. Do you think they were ever talking about quarterback EPA five years ago in Hall I of Fame happy. discussions? It really makes me happy the people that comprise the Hall of Fame discussions now. The fact that like guys like Mike Sando have such a voice in that room, I think will end up being really important for the types of people that are recognized moving forward. And you know, I'm not my life doesn't hinge on whether Philip Rivers gets into the Hall of Fame. But I just think if we're putting the best players in, the idea that he was never the best quarterback in his era is a knock against him, but he also played with arguably the greatest quarterbacks yes. in the history of football. So I think that it's it goes both ways. And I understand the arguments against him, and I understand the postseason success should matter, but I will take it to my grave that I think if you put him on the Steelers for their entire career, that he wins two Super Bowls or more with those teams. I legitimately and, believe that, and I'll never get off of that. And I think you also have to, when you were talking about Phillip Rivers and his career, you also have to consider kind of what the Chargers did to him for a lot of his prime yeah. years, but the offensive lines that they put in front of him, you know, he spent what four years or five years as Mike with Mike McCoy as his head coach, where there were some pretty significant 
issues with with the way that that team was constructed. That was in the stretch of of, of NFL football where everybody who coached Peyton Manning was getting head coaching jobs, which is never a good thing. (laughs) Exactly. And and then just everything that kind of he had to live through during the San Diego Chargers relocation, where he was the front and center guy there, the face of that franchise, so beloved in San Diego, having to be torn between the city that he loved, this fan base he loved, and then his employer who was moving, you know, there's all those stories about him commuting back and forth from San Diego to uh, to Orange County to practice and just everything that kind of he had to deal with that most players would never have to deal with. And he did it with such grace. And uh, it was really incredible. I'm, I remember going to one of the one of his first games in Los Angeles. And I spent a lot of time in the parking lot because I was working on a story about um, kind of the LA franchises and the state of where they were. And talking to a a lot of Chargers fans who were only there from San Diego because of Philip Rivers. He was their last tie to that franchise. And they couldn't give up on cheering for the Chargers as long as Philip Rivers was there. Now that he's gone, and I mean, he was gone last year, obviously, but now that he's like officially gone, like there would that those ties now between San Diego and the Chargers are, I think, are irreparable. But, you know, he's been fun. I, you know, I'm grateful that I got to watch him and cover him. You know, I was a Broncos beat writer, so I spent a lot of time watching those AFC West games, trips to Qualcomm Stadium, just feel really fortunate to have to have been around him. And, you know, best of luck to him in his future. And, you know, he's got nine kids, seven daughters, which is, you know, really incredible. And I guess just from like kind of a personal standpoint, he and I are the same age. And so I kind of always like, you know, would think about that. You know, he, my entire like adult life of watching football and covering football is this guy who was also born the same year that I was and same life stages. And I just can't fathom having nine children, including one who is his oldest child has got to be if she's not out of high school, she's got to be very close to being out of high school. So, you know, it's, it's just this whole different, lifestyle but um yeah that's it that's all i got in philip rivers there aren't that many quarterbacks that are my age because the quarterbacks that were coming into the league when i was going out of college it was like that dip the brady quinn production it's exactly what it was and so there are very few that are my age like it's really just matthew stafford everybody's either one or two or three years older than me like the rogers matt ryan group or everyone's a lot younger than me so i have the dip that doesn't exist which is really funny all right speaking of quarterbacks Let's get to somebody playing this weekend, and that is Patrick Mahomes. What is the latest on Patrick Mahomes? We had a large conversation, long conversation with Nate Taylor about this yesterday. Uh, What is the latest that you have seen, and and where are we in the Patrick Mahomes concussion and otherwise health discussion? Sure. So Patrick Mahomes was practiced on on Wednesday, which is a really significant sign in terms of his progress through the concussion protocols. The one kind of caveat here is that – the practice that the Chiefs went through today was basically a walkthrough. Nobody was wearing helmets. So he was able to do everything that was required to do in a walkthrough. So the Chiefs initially listed him as a full participant. They had to reissue their injury report to say that he was limited because that has to be based on a, the projections of a full practice. Thursday's designation will be really important. That's going to tell us a lot about exactly where he is in the protocol. But the feeling in Kansas City right now, I think the feeling around the team is very positive positive that he will be able to play. Basically what they have to watch for now is that he doesn't exhibit any sort of concussion symptoms or or other uh, 
otherwise neurological symptoms. So, you know, obviously no headaches, sensitivity to light, um, no, no sort of symptoms returning. And he has to pass all of his neurological, neurocognitive tests, and they have to make sure they're back to the baseline levels. The fact that he was allowed to be out there taking snaps today is an indication to me that those neurocognitive tests have all gone the way that they're supposed to. And he's, you know, performing at his baseline functions. They haven't been able to say that specifically, but my like very intense readings of the protocols and people I've spoken with over the last couple of days, that's what it, um, that's what this leads me to believe. Um, I don't think we'll get to hear from him this week. Quarterbacks or any player are not allowed to speak to the media while they're still in the concussion protocol. And Mm -hmm. I just think timing wise, it'll probably be to the end of the week. I mean, maybe they could sneak it in on Friday, but at this point I would be very, very surprised if Patrick Mahomes isn't the starting quarterback on Sunday for uh, the AFC championship game. Good. I, I was we were talking to somebody today about it and the idea that he would not be able to play or even the fact that he got hurt in the last game is just kind of a bummer when you're thinking about playoff football. It's better. Obviously, like football is better. Things are better. It feels the right for him to be out there. And it's, it seems like we're trending in that direction, which is a really and- good thing. The one other thing just to watch with him is that he does have that left toe that was yep. seemed to be hampering him a lot in the first half of that game um, last week. He is listed; it's listed on the injury report, so it's something to watch. Andy Reid seems to say it's not going to be like a major issue, but it's just another thing to watch because this year, more than any year in his short career, they've just really taken advantage of him on the move. And totally. you know, while he's never been, you know, he's never going to be Lamar Jackson. He's just so effective throwing on the run and if he's at all hampered and you know they've been running those option plays with him we saw the kind of the the, the speed option red zone play that they ran I'm assuming those have been day. removed from the playbook yes I mean they completely removed the quarterback sneak from him last year after he dislocated his kneecap and I'm guessing now those option plays are also going to be out but uh it's just something you know it just changes Andy Reid's game plan right I mean it just takes some of the pages out of his playbook but um at this point, we should just expect that he's going to be there, but probably won't be running the option. Yeah. And also, I think that we'll talk about this a little bit with Nate, but the amount of zone coverage and soft zone coverage and not no blitzing that the Bills did to him last time, the ability to kind of extend plays and allow those zones to disintegrate a little bit is a really important part of this game. So if he can move around, it, it's just one more thing that the Bills have to worry about. All right. Let's get to some news here. We didn't really talk about this with Mike yesterday. Uh, because we were so focused on the coaching side of it. But a few GM hires have come down over the last week or so. And if I'm being honest, just kind of stuff that makes your eyes glaze over. Like Trent Baalke getting the GM job in Jacksonville. It's like, all right, we've 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 seen Trent Baalke before. Marty Herney getting the GM job in Washington, which seems like that's official now. Marty Herney has been fired twice as the Panthers GM. Now is going to Washington because he's familiar with Ron Rivera. I don't... It's hard to get excited about this stuff, and it's hard to look at this and not see it as part of the problem when we're talking about the NFL refreshing itself with new, different faces and ideas. That's really my big takeaway from guys like this getting yet another opportunity when it's not like they've performed themselves out of their old jobs. And then the flip side of that, though, is then guys like Brad Holmes getting the job in Detroit, given just how innovative and a lot of the stuff that he's credited with doing within the Los Angeles Rams front office, and then Terry Fontenot in uh, going from New Orleans to get the GM job in Atlanta. Like those, I think those are two innovative hires and two guys exactly. I'm really excited about. So yeah, I'm not super jacked up about the uh, the. Um, 
especially Trent Balky and Jacksonville. I just have a ton of questions about like fit, uh, personality, potential conflicts between him and uh, Urban Meyer and just what that says about what the power structure is going to be there. It just, to me, increases the likelihood that this could all go wrong in Jacksonville when they're trying to really rebuild. But I'm just super curious now about what like the Lions are going to look like with this, you know, with Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell, like these two guys who've come from very different organizations, different backgrounds, but seems like, you know, they're, they're really moving, trying to move this organization forward and not just bringing in guys who are coming from, you know, the Patriot way to do things all the same way. Um, which, which of those two jobs do you think you're more interested in? And, you know, maybe with Atlanta, what do you see that, you know, now that they're taking somebody from New Orleans, how do you think that'll change things? I, it's interesting because I think in a lot of ways, it depends on what you want to do if you're the Falcons, right? If this was going to be a situation where they're like, all right, let's blow it up. Let's start over. Then it's a different consideration than what sort of tweaks can we make to this core? And I honestly think that if it's the latter, Terry Fontenot's experience in New Orleans is fairly valuable because he was on the pro scouting side there. And some of the ways they were able to get veterans onto that roster to maximize Drew Brees' final years, obviously your owner willing to pay that much and kicking the can down the road and some of the things they did financially are not super easy to pull off. But I do think that the overall philosophy of how they tried to fill out the margins of the Saints roster over the last few years might be informative when it comes to what the Falcons are going to try to do. And I think in Detroit, some of the stuff that the Falcon or the Rams have tried to do with their college scouting and the types of players that they've gone after. I mean, it seems like both of these guys are the types of people that you'd want in these roles. And if the NFL, if we're trying to pretend like the NFL is a meritocracy and the guys that have done the best jobs are getting the biggest jobs, I think that's exactly what this situation is. Both of those guys are the exact types of candidates you would pin to say they deserve a chance to run it themselves. And I think that one of the things that's worth pointing out is that those are traditional structures there with Detroit and Atlanta. With Ron Rivera and Urban Meyer, they're the main decision makers, so it's a lot easier to put a yes man in those spots because it's the coach who's in charge and you just want somebody who's going to kind of get in line. So those are it's worth considering, but I still think that I'm more excited about what's going to happen in Atlanta and Detroit and the direction they're going than I am with the Jags and Washington going with the status quo yet again. Well, and it also sounds like Barton Mayhew is going to be joining that Washington front office, leaving San but Francisco here's my thing. to be just joining give him there. The GM so like, job. Yeah, what is he doing there exactly? Like, I don't. I, I'm a little curious. So I want to hear from Rivera what exactly the breakdown of power is going to be and what the who's going to be responsible for what? Because I don't know why you hire both of those guys. Like, couldn't you've just hired Mayhew? But I think that's right? kind of. I don't the know. Pro- I think that's the thing is the structure is such that if Ron is at the top then you really just have a bunch of guys that are collaborating underneath him. So having that one singular GM isn't quite as important. So I don't, I don't know. The whole thing is naughty and I'm not really sure exactly how to read into it, but all right, let's get to, let's stay with the, the lions for a second. They recently hired Aaron Glenn as their defensive coordinator, who is the defensive backs coach in new Orleans. This is the exact type of hire that we've been talking about on this show for a little while now in the sense that, Go out and get somebody that's not just a retread ex-head coach and that's actually done a really good job as a position coach and can inject some new life into the coordinator jobs around the league. And I think that that's exactly what Aaron Glenn is in Detroit and Raheem Morris getting that job with the Rams. And by all accounts, Jordan Rodriguez, the athletic zone, Jordan Rodriguez, 
uh, reported today that he seems to be the favorites trending in that direction. Another guy who has done a really good job with Atlanta when he was given the defense, considering how they performed under Dan Quinn. I think that these are both moves that you can understand that are moving the league in the right direction, all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I like both of these decisions. I mean, Aaron Glenn has been kind of in that like that short list of up and coming defensive coaches for, for a couple of years. I mean, obviously a, a former player, a really respected former players, players love him. Um, one question I now have is the Saints are going to be going through massive changes. I mean, their coaching staff is now really kind of uh, breaking apart. So I'm really curious now what, what Sean Payton's staff is going to look like moving forward, not just what his quarterback room is going to look like. Because there's been so much retention there. I mean, it's so funny because I this is just a behind-the-curtain I mean, thing. But when you try to write about teams, it's really helpful to have staff turnover because there are guys no longer there that you can ask. Like, if you wanted to write a story about what was happening with the Saints in, like, 2014, it'd be hard to do because everyone on that staff was still in New Orleans at the end of this season. So it is really telling, I think that they've had some turnover there and that guys from that staff are getting outside jobs because Sean Payton's done a really, really good job of either incentivizing those guys or just convincing them to stay over time. Yeah, and now Dennis Allen, I think, has even had um, yep, at great, least one interview, example. their defensive coordinator. So it's, it's going to be Pete really... Carmichael was brought up to me as an offensive coordinator option for the first time in a while. Yeah, his today. name was out there a couple years ago and then kind of uh, was not in the cycle. And now maybe it's just a sign that, you know, if you're going to be rebuilding everything and making going through some pretty significant organizational overhauls, then maybe it is the time to let some of these guys go. But so it's, it's really interesting. I, I think that the Raheem Morris move to L.A. is going to be really interesting, too, because they had some really probably qualified internal candidates that they could have looked at guys who coached directly under Brandon Staley when they were so successful. Um, Aubrey Pleasant is the guy scheme. I was like, I was wondering if he was yes, going to get that absolutely. job because like Aaron Glenn, he had done such a good job with the guys in that secondary over the last few years. He thought, is this going to be his chance to step into this role? And instead, they gave it to Raheem Morris and beyond the internal external candidate thing schematically it's a really interesting fit you know they did not play a lot of man coverage and they did not play a lot of single high shell with the Rams last year it was a lot of zone and we talked a lot in the show about how the structure of that defense looked now you're going to somebody who you know the saying the Falcons were like a cover three team by the end is they weren't they were much more aggressive than that much more varied but they still played a lot more man and a lot more single high stuff than the Rams did last year so how all of that blends together with Raheem Morris I think is going to be something to watch and one of my favorite things about Raheem Morris or the most intriguing things is he gets kind of a full-time defensive coordinator job right here is the time that he was with the Falcons after he got fired after when he was head coach of the Bucks, he actually switched to offense and he was their yep. wide receivers coach um, under Kyle Shanahan when they made their Super Bowl run. So while he is kind of a defensive coach at heart, he switched sides of the ball for a while. So he has just a really unique perspective on football and offensive football. And I just think that those meetings, those 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 coaches meetings between you know him and Sean McVay are going to be really really interesting. They came up together. They were really young assistants together, you know, early in their career in Tampa. So I just think that they're um you know, it's a really unique dynamic and uh I can I I'm looking forward to watching that, you know. I mean, look, I always want to watch the Rams defense, but um, <laughs> I'm intrigued. I'll be I would love to, I'm really interested to see what it looks like and what the structure of it is. So with those two guys getting jobs, we now by my quick math, if you take Anthony Weaver out, because I assume he will not be retained in Houston when they turn the coaching staff over, I want to say we now have 10 of 30 defensive coordinators are minorities. 
and I think ten they're ten black of thirty ten black coaches of the thirty of the thirty spots, which is a step in the right direction, absolutely. And I think that those guys again, Aaron Glenn getting a job over somebody that's just a retread white head coach. I think is the type of things we should be considering, especially because the league has shown that it is pulling from the coordinator pool as often as it's pulling from the offensive coordinator pool. That, though, is still something to consider because right now we have two black offensive coordinators coaching this weekend. Those are the two. <laughs> so that's it. Yeah. Eric so the enemy and Byron Leftwich. Yep. So there's still a long way to go there. But you know, guys like Aaron Glenn and Raheem Morris getting those opportunities, I absolutely think is a sign of progress and something that the league should be happy about. And the same goes for Terry Fontenot. I think that one of the things me and Mike didn't touch on on yesterday's show was that I think more GMs of color getting hired will be a step toward possibly getting more minority coaches hired. And that that absolutely is a good thing. So the guys like Terry Fontenot getting those opportunities, guys like Aaron Glad getting those opportunities, that's a good thing for the league and what has been a, a week with some concerns, let's say. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people, especially in the league office right now, that are disappointed, frustrated about what this hiring cycle overall has looked like in terms of um, diversity, diverse hires at the coaching ranks, especially. Um, but the the long term hope here is that a lot of the measures that they put in place with the Rooney Rule changes, um, especially Rooney Rule changes that require um, the interviewing of minority candidates or, or female candidates for all senior level positions will eventually help with kind of like a trickle down effect in terms of, you know, what candidate pools look like moving forward. We haven't seen it in 2021. I think there there a couple months ago, people in the league office were hopeful that they would see some more immediate changes. That certainly hasn't happened. But we'll we'll see if these if, if these measures kind of pan out long term. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. All right. Let's get to the games this weekend. I know Nate and I are going to do sort of the X's and O's, nuts and bolts breakdowns. 
But I wanted to do a couple different things with you that I thought would be kind of fun. So obviously, as we wait for this game and then as eventually we wait for the Super Bowl, we're going to hear about the same storylines over and over and over again. And it can be tempting to just throw cold water on those and be annoyed by them and everything else. But every once in a while, there are a couple of those storylines that I kind of secretly like. And I wanted to explore that for both of these games. For me, on the NFC side, I don't know how you feel, but the Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, what legacy points are at stake here in this game storyline, I am all the way in on that. Like I completely buy into that, and I think that there's a ton at stake for both of those guys if they were to win this game and then potentially the next game. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think last week when it was so much like Brady and Breeze, you kind of at some point like started rolling your eyes because the actual football matchup didn't live, exactly. up to, uh, live up to that. And it was really sad and kind of hard to watch. But I think absolutely football-wise, this is going to le- going to live up to it in terms of how both of these guys have been playing at this point in the postseason. But there's so much at stake for both of these guys. I mean, look, they're they're both... We talk about Hall of Fame discussions, right? I mean, these guys are both first ballot Hall of Famers, you know, top five quarterbacks of all time. But winning a Super Bowl changes so much for both of these guys, for their long-term legacies, for their their standings and amongst their peers. So what let's let's run through it. What's at stake for Aaron Rodgers here in terms of his what, legacy? If he wins the Super Bowl? I think even getting to the Super Bowl, but certainly if he wins it. But so if he wins this game this weekend. If he wins this one, all right, that would give him two Super Bowl appearances and one win. Are we assuming that he wins the MVP? Yes. he's probably going to. Okay. Yeah. So now he would have three MVPs, the, fir- the, sec- the third one coming almost 10 years after the first one, which I think is always something to take into consideration. Aaron Rodgers is the same age now that John Elway was when he won his first Super Bowl with the Broncos. When we were talking about John Elway that he season, barely people walk. Were, everyone, it was like the old cowboy, like one last ride. Aaron Rodgers was the MVP of the league. They were the same age. So just t- something to keep taking into consideration. So that would give him two Super Bowl appearances, one Super Bowl win, three MVP awards. I think if he gets to, and I think this already, but, but for other people, I think if he gets to another Super Bowl, his career in the aggregate becomes more impressive than Drew Brees's. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. So I think the extension of that is if he gets there and if he potentially wins it, where does he now fall in the list of the greatest quarterbacks of all time? He probably goes from the back half of the top 10, much closer to the top five. If he were to win another one, he'd have the same number of Super Bowls as Peyton Manning. If he wins another one. And if he wins one, it would be when he was the MVP, not when he was dragged there by a defense and his old bones could barely throw the ball. (laughs) So I think that stuff is something to consider. The fact that he could win another Super Bowl as, by consensus, the best player in football that season goes a long, long way in the way that we talk about Aaron Rodgers. I don't need that, personally, for the way that I think about him, but I think the public in general and at large, that is a huge, huge deal. I think he'd like that too. Oh, you know, he absolutely I would. <laughs> <laughs> I think he cares about kind of where he falls in this hierarchy and especially, um, um, you know, the guys that are playing right now, you know, when he's Drew Brees. I mean, look, he, 
that crew of guys. I mean, I don't think there's any question that he's the best of his generation, but he's kind of like we talked about with your age, kind of sandwiched between a couple groups where he's not quite as old as the old guys, but he's not part of this new generation that we'll we'll get to when we talk about the AFC. So I, I think it's really, it is very much a legacy defining moment, but it's absolutely legacy defining for for Tom Brady and not quite in the same, like we're not going to view him differently in terms of like number of championships, but it's so much, it's so narrative in terms of- It the removes decision. a question. And I yes. think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, because it was always forever. Was it Brady or was it Belichick? Exactly. And I think Belichick got- a ton of the credit. And I probably am guilty of that too, of saying that, you know, a lot of their titles were because of Belichick, less so because of Brady. And now what we've seen is that he's carrying another team to an NFC championship game. If he gets a chance to play a Super Bowl at home with his new team, um, less than a year after signing in one of the most difficult seasons ever in the history of the NFL, that's really incredible. And that's, I mean, that's a major feather in his cap and also a pretty big knock on Belichick's so it's not only it's like improving his legacy and maybe tearing Belichick down a step I think it's there are so few things for Tom Brady left to prove you know there what else could he do I think is a reasonable question this is the answer this is it and guess what guess who else knew that and guess who else knows that Tom Brady this is part of the reason he does this. It's part of the reason he wants to go somewhere else and he wants to keep playing because he is incredibly aware of the narrative, of the dialogue around him, of the way he is perceived. And the last remaining question, the last remaining hurdle was can he do it without Belichick? He knows that and I guarantee you that matters to him. And that's the point that we've reached. It's so interesting. And I think the other thing, the last thing I'd say about Rodgers is this is a chance to erase some of the playoff moments that drag him down, right? I think that his record in conference championship games is so misleading, like it's ridiculous. The idea that he's one in three, right? One in three. The idea is one, he's one in. They, he lost to the Seahawks. Two. They lost to one the Falcons. Two. Lost to the Seahawks. So one in three. So they lost to the Seahawks, the Falcons, and the Niners last year. Yes. The Seahawks game, first of all, if Brandon Bostic catches an onside kick, <laughs> one we're not of even the having weirdest this games. Of all I was, time. Were you there? No, I was in New England watching it in the oh press God, box. I was there. Yeah. What a what a weird weird game. I will never ever forget that. I was in the locker room after, and Seattle's visitor locker room is actually pretty big, and they had these big lockers. And I remember walking in. Corey Lindsay was just white as a ghost. He was a I think it was his rookie year, and Brandon Bostic was so far inside his locker that you could just see the tips of his shoes coming out of it. He just wanted to disappear. And I just felt so bad for him in that moment. And you know, Rodgers didn't play great, but if you go look at playoff quarterback success, every guy is like an 84 passer rating. Like it's hard to be great in the playoffs. Every once in a while, it's about the bounces of the ball. The bounces have not gone there, did not go their way that day. Mike Obviously, McCarthy 20- lost them that game. Brandon Bostic did not lose them that game. Mike McCarthy lost them that game for totally kicking field fair. goals from like inside the five yard line over and over and over again in the first half of that game. Whoever it was, I, but yeah, squarely at the feet of Aaron Rodgers is that's the problem that we run into with this play, these playoff discussions. But they lose that game in 2011. Losing to the Giants is, I mean, that's a heartbreaker. That 2011 team was a machine. They were the best team in football. They get jumped down in the divisional round. Packers fans are going to take that to their grave and be upset about it. 
The other two are ridiculous. The 2016 Packers were not a good football team. Let let us let's be explicit about that. They were I think a, he was their leading rusher that year. That the 2016 Packers were not a good football team. He decided in the second half of the year, fuck you. I, we're going to the playoffs, and they and they did. How he played down the stretch that season was insane. They ran into a buzzsaw Falcons team that was the best team in football that year. Let's be clear about all of this. They were better than the Patriots and should have won that Super Bowl, and they had no chance in that game. And then last year, they were not they were not that good. They were outmanned against the 49ers. This is the first time he is back in the conference championship game since 2014, where his team has a fighting chance. And I think if they win this game. And he goes to the Super Bowl again. Like we said, it, it erases so much and it covers up for so many shortcomings that he's had in the postseason and the ways that people talk about him. It goes such a long way. So, and this is the first of any of those championship games that's been at Lambeau Field. Exactly. It, I mean, it's it's a big moment because it's a different moment for them. And, and I think that that's really important to consider. All right. Let's get to the AFC championship game here. The storyline that I don't mind in this one at all, and the one I'm actually really excited about, is the idea that... While we have the old guard in the NFC, we have the new guys in the AFC. We have those young, up-and-coming quarterbacks that I think stylistically are sort of similar in the sense that it doesn't matter if you get a holding call on second on second and five. If it's second and 15, these guys will erase it. The plays they can make out of structure and just the overall physical ability they have. I mean, we have two just swinging haymaker quarterbacks going at it in this game and the guys that are going to usher in the next era of the NFL after these guys age out. And I am all in on that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is like an NFL television executive's dream scenario where you now have this new generation of young quarterbacks, and it's not just one or two of them. I mean, you had it last week where you had uh, you had Baker Mayfield in this field or in the final four. You had Lamar Jackson in this. Lamar final Jackson, four. Josh Allen. Yep. You know, last year you had Deshaun Watson in the in the final. You know, in, well, I guess he didn't make it to the final four because of Bill O'Brien. But you have you know you have Deshaun Watson. You do have you just have kind of this plethora of these young guys where the AFC it just you're any sort of matchup almost that you can put together now in the AFC. You're going to have one of these really ridiculously fun, strong, physical, viral type of quarterbacks. So yeah, I'm not I'm not tired of, you know, Allen versus Mahomes, Mahomes, Mahomes versus Watson, everybody versus Lamar Jackson. I'm never going to get tired, I think, of those potential storylines. And it did make me think, and I'll pose this question to you. I got asked this question in my mailbag last week. In 10 years, we're going to look back, which quarterback class is going to be better? 2017, Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Mitchell Trubisky, uh, or 2018. That's the Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, uh, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen class. Where do you stand on that? If we if we if we're gonna look, you know, once we've had a bigger body of work than we have right now. I think it's 2017, and I don't think it'll end up being close. Because I think Mahomes is gonna be the best player in the NFL for as long as he's healthy. I think Deshaun Watson is already the second most valuable player in the NFL, if you consider the next five to 10 years. So Josh Allen's been great, and Lamar Jackson was the MVP, but I still think they're a step down from that group in terms of overall value. So that's where I'd land. I don't, Josh Allen's only getting better, and I think that his development is going to be a huge part of this conversation, but Josh Allen is going to need to become consistently the third or fourth best quarterback in the NFL for this to be a debate. 
And I think that's, and, and that's what makes this like kind of an interesting question too, is because we have to project some guys who have been somewhat inconsistent, who have had one brilliant year and not back to back to back good years, like Mahomes and Watson. I think the other thing that makes it an interesting question is that there's no question to me that the top of the 2017 quarterback class is better with Mahomes and Watson. But then when you try to go deeper, it's a very shallow class. 2018 has a lot more depth to it. I still don't think we know anything about Sam Darnold. Um, and exactly, he's he's such an unknown to me at this point in terms of what he might be able to accomplish if he can be a you know, a mid-tier, you know, top 15 NFL quarterback at some point. What does that do? That's a big ask. That That is a big ask. Look, get him away from, get him away from Adam Gase and he's going to be Ryan Tannehill. Let's see. Let's, let's go. I, I've, I've done the research on this. I, when I wrote about Sam Darnold in November and I looked at if there are any quarterbacks who have been as bad as Sam Darnold for as long. So three full seasons with numbers worse than Sam Darnold that ended up becoming good. The answer is yes. There are guys that did. Alex Smith is in that group. Drew Brees is weirdly in that group. And Eli Manning is right on the edge. That being said, the NFL in 2001 was very, very different than the NFL is right now when Drew Brees was struggling through his first couple seasons. So it's a much tougher road for Sam Darnold to bounce back from those early career struggles than it was for some of those other guys. But it does tell me that coaching matters and scheme oh, matters. And, you know, let's let's just pray for Sam Darnold that, you know, whether that's working with Mike LaFleur with the Jets or if they decide to trade him and he ends up in Indianapolis with Frank Reich, that he gets a fresh coaching start that can help him, you know, save his career. It's going to be one of the questions of the offseason. And it's honestly one of the questions about the sport. You know, when I was considering Darnold and what he could eventually do, this is a conversation for way later, but before we put a cap on it, you have to think about Ryan Tannehill. You have to think about the Gase effect and how it really hampers these guys and how getting with a different coaching staff could affect you. And I think still Sam Darnold's what, like 19 years old? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah he, I think he was born in the 2000s. He, he's eternally 20, so we're, we're going to keep talking ourselves into that. All right, Lindsay, thank you so much. Always good to chat with you. We will be back next week. We're going to have to come up with some stuff to talk about during the off week. It's always a weird NFL journalist programming time, but we're going to make it happen. We're going to figure yeah, it out. Yeah, I mean, normally that's the week that I would – it's one of my most valuable like travel weeks, reporting yep. weeks, and uh, I'll be doing it from right here in my home in Denver, Colorado. Also not, I mean, next week is the senior bowl. That's going to be different. We're not going to have the kind of the same news cycle coming out of the senior bowl as usual years. So yeah, we'll make it work. We'll come up with some really fun stuff for us. Send us some questions. I don't know. We'll, we'll have a good time. Are are you sad about the combine? The fact that you're not going to be able to like drink at a crowded bar while you know, X, Y, like X offensive line coach from some team is just like knocking you out of the way when you're trying to get a drink. Well, I won't miss the late night bar scene, but to be honest, I've kind of stopped with the late night combine bar scene. I'm going to miss like the 7 a.m. Starbucks scene at the convention center. That's when I get the bulk of my work done is like the, Understandable. the it's, early it's the, morning. That's called the Mike Sando special. It, it really is. A lot of times it would just be me and Mike Sando there. And now we <laughs> and now we work together. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just going to be a very different offseason. And I think with as much, you know, optimism as there is right now about things getting better and um you know, starting to look towards the 2021 season. The reality is, is that a lot of the reporting challenges are going to kind of be the same for, for a little while and it's going to be different, but we'll make it fun. We'll adapt. We'll, we'll get by. 
We'll figure it out. I trust us both to make it happen. All right. So good to talk to you. Uh, We'll catch up next week. All right. Sounds good. See you later, Robert. All right. See you. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right. I am very excited now to welcome my good buddy, Nate Tyson, to the show. Nate, how are you? I'm doing great. This is a week six rematch. So that was that was nice and easy on Game Pass. Just it was to keep it so in the same nice. Week. The so fact that we could just nice. rewatch the games. I mean, obviously, the, both teams are doing some different stuff. But I yeah. think the ways that they attacked each other are informative. And I think going back and watching them was really useful. So we're just going to go deep X's and O's breakdowns, both of these games. And let's start with the NFC Championship game, a game that I will be at. I'm looking forward to it. I haven't looked at the temperature yet. I, last week was totally fine. It was 35 degrees. It was a balmy day in Green Bay for January. <laughs> it was 18 today when I took Molly out this morning for her walk. I was not enjoying it. So it's pretty cold, and it's a little bit colder now than it was last week. So I'll see what the temperature is. I, I've been complaining there. about temperatures at like 52 here in Vegas. <laughs> I'm Today's such the a first wuss. day. I was in Miami for a while, and today's the first day where I walked outside in Chicago, and I was like, you know what? It's fucking cold. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's really cold today. Yep. So yeah. we'll see what it's like in Green Bay. One thing, though, Tom Brady, not going to be a problem. It's not Doesn't like he's care. the Bucks quarterback. He's done this for a while. I will say, something to take into consideration, how long does it take you to get soft? Because when I lived in L.A. for the first time, when I got back from my first winter, it had been like eight months and I was not the same. I had lost that kind of hardened protective shell. So I'm wondering how he's going to do. I when I first moved here to Vegas, I think my first cold trip, I'm trying to think, it was like a full year after. And yeah, that I'd say a year, maybe like that first time you dip back into like, I think it's the 40 degrees, 50 degrees weather. That's the big difference. When you're in warm weather, like... 48 degrees might as well be 10 degrees. And then when you're, <laughs> when you're, when I grew up in Minnesota, 48 degrees is like golf weather, oh, shorts, oh, yeah, shorts, yeah, shorts t shirt. You're that. And I mean, that was like May weather sometimes <laughs> in Minnesota. <laughs> so I, I think, I think it was about nine months. And I was like, I, I, I and I, you know what? I don't even care anymore. I don't care. I, I'll admit I'm cold now. It's no longer I'm like a tough guy. I'm like, no, I'm cold. I like being warm. <laughs> That's also, why I live here. <laughs> Tom Brady's got those old bones. You got to take that ah, into consideration. Very true. So, the joints. I mean, those old yeah. bones will get you. Arthritis right. might be coming on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he has no arthritis. All the pliability <laughs> no, work that guy does, he's doing just fine. All right. 
Let's start on the Packers offensive side of the ball because obviously that was the most surprising part of the last time these two teams played. I mean, Rodgers had his worst game of the season by far. Not even his worst game of the season. It was in an entirely different stratosphere. Yeah. When you look at the EPA per play, everything else, I mean, he led the league in pretty much every single advanced passing metric. This was such an outlier. He finished th- 16 of 35 for 160 yards and two picks. I mean, it looked nothing like himself. And it really did seem like when I went back and rewatched that game, they were totally out of sorts. Mm-hmm. Every single time there was a blitz, I mean, I, a lot of credit to the Bucks defense. I thought that Todd Bowles was pushing all the right buttons in that game. It just felt like every single time they brought pressure, guys were dropping into the right spot, getting right in front of the hots, taking away Rodgers' options. So what were your takeaways from that last game that you think are repeatable for the Bucks against this team? And how do you think the Packers might try to respond? Uh, Bulls is, he has this like kind of like five ish coverages, five plays that he, he'll run. And it just seems like an emphasis on which one he will, uh, like live in. But really the thing that even with Rogers having a terrible game, that's just one of those days, you know, it's kind of like nothing was going right for the Packers. You, you had the clip on the flip side of the defense when they dropped nine into coverage. Uh, you know, Jesus. so it was just one of those games where it was just like, wow, we can't do anything right. But having said that. I think you're right. I think Bulls had a tell or something. He had a great feel for when to dial up a blitz. He's always going to bring heat, but when when to exactly call certain ones? Is it the linebacker dog right up the middle? Is it the safety? Is it more of a, a fire zone? You know, more two guys and then run zone behind it. And I think they he just threw him out of sorts and he was just kind of making him guess, which you don't really see Rogers doing a lot. Uh, a lot of. I think goes, a perfect example of that is the second interception, the tipped one. Yeah. So it looked, Devontae was on the right side running a slant, and Rodgers threw hot to him. I assume he thought it was going to be a zone pressure, but Davis was playing man. He was right there with Devontae on the slant, tips it, interception. And I think that was really indicative of how how uncomfortable he was throughout that game, where you see pressure, you think, I'm going here fast, and... It's not as open as you want it to be because with the blitzes and with the pressures, you have to anticipate your reactions. You're not going to see what it is. You have to anticipate what it is and predict where space is going to be based on space vacated. And the Bucs just did such a good job of making sure that they had bodies in that vacated space, whether it was man or zone. It's and that's what it is. There, a lot of quarterback stuff is educated guessing, and uh, yep. that's why it's so freaky what some guys can do because. They'll anticipate things that were, I mean, even like like watching Breeze. I know Breeze is retiring. He hit a couple of throws even last week where it was like he's anticipating stuff. And it's like, God, that's right. He still can do that. And so especially against a pressure because there's that window of the defense, the defenders trying to rally and tackle if they're, you know, if they're trying to make a throw hot or short of the sticks and also the quarterback getting out before the pressure gets home. So it's that little window the offense can attack, and then the best quarterbacks just hit that window over and over and over and over. And it's just ridiculous how they can do that. But that's such a great point. As soon as And Rodgers is historically one of those guys. You don't one blitz him. Yeah, and that, you don't. that's why this is so surprising in the way Correct. that it worked out. That's actually going back. I, I was like, man, maybe the O-line just broke down, and I'm just remembering it different it's like no they brought heat and they're getting home and they're just creating edginess and creating um and, and the second game we're, we're in the afc championship game i'm going to bring up this point again but just creating edginess in the pocket and just making the quarterback feel uncomfortable totally. is j- just as good as a sack i mean yes sacks are awesome drive enders but like just doing that over and over and just always making the quarterback maybe a quarter second late where he's like, oh, I'm late in this throw. I'm checking it down or I'm late in this throw. Oh, okay, I got, I got to get out of the pocket because otherwise the guy's going to jump it. And that's where pressure can do it. Pressure might not hit home, but it 
will cause the quarterback to real get out of sync with the receivers. And that's what happened. That's what happened in that first game. And I, I am curious to see what changes, you know, because Bowles loves running his stuff. And, you know, is he going to be confident and go like, Hey, we got him. Like we got to tell on what they do, or is it going to be, I'm terrified that we put out film of this <laughs> and, and Rogers is just going to shred us, you know? Um, I, yeah, but that, that's what we could talk about uh, all day because it's going to be so, I'm so curious to watch it because even in the saints game, Bulls was running a little bit of everything. And we got to remember the big picture of this. It's one game of it. The the saints were beating the crap out of the bucks all season, the both two, two times they played. And then how good the bucks look on Sunday. The Packers are one of three teams since 2002 to average more than a field goal a drive. The 2007 Patriots, the 2018 <laughs> Chiefs, and the 2020 Packers. More than three points per drive. the greatest offenses we've ever seen in NFL history. That is like, I <laughs> I had to go back and I was like, maybe this is a little more common than I thought it was. And I just kept clicking on pro football reference each year, each year, each year. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't realize that this is so rare, that averaging a field goal a drive. And yeah, that's what the 2020 Packers are doing. So you always have to keep that in your back mind. It's like, this offense is ridiculous right now. We haven't even talked about the run game, which I think is going to be key too. So I want to throw out a couple solutions to you that I have based on what Let's happened in week six. I think they should spread it out a little bit more than they did because condensed, one of the issues yeah. they had was with condensed formations. You're bringing bodies around. It also makes it a lot more difficult to understand who's going to come and who's not. When you're sitting there with your slot receiver a yard and a half off of your tight end and the slots right there, they brought Murphy Bunting off the edge several different times. So I think that was part of the problem. I also think one specific play that that jumps out to me with spreading it out a little bit and what that could do for you, they ran a four verts with Mercedes Lewis going down the right seam, and he just missed them. And those are the types of throws he usually makes. And I think spreading it out and just having a little bit more space, forcing their linebackers to widen a little bit, everything like that, I just think more space and allowing him to see will be helpful for them. Do you think that that would make sense based on what the Bucks tried to do to them last time? Absolutely. The condensed formation stuff is such a great uh, uh, point to make because that is one of the weaknesses of being in those is even a bunch formation is the nickel two yards outside the box as opposed to yep. seven, eight yards where you can see the safety cap it. Uh, I actually just tweeted a clip of Drew Brees on Sunday pointing out the Bucks pressure. And actually how, and it was against a bunch formation because it, so it looked hidden. It looked like a too high defense. Uh, Breeze, when it was third down, Breeze goes on a long, hard count, got the defense to kind of show their hand, just tipped it a little bit, pointed it. They protected it. It was nickel slot pressure. And that's bunch formation really hid. Even for me, I was like, oh, wow, that's a great point. He knows the safety's moving over and that's. I know the exact nickel. play you're talking about. Yeah. It was so then, funny when he pointed it out. He was yep. like, it was 23, 23. And he was yep. saying, yep, I remember and then he, that. And he it, hits it the really dig right over the middle. Nice throw yep. too over the middle. Uh, but that's actually what's so funny is the. Uh, the the difference of of like these teams that they're playing against is against the Packers or, or against the uh, the Saints it was you the the Bucks could maybe sit a little bit further back you know Breeze is gonna have to really beat you with his arm against the Packers you're terrified to run man coverage I mean you're terrified every time you you have to have one on one coverage with Devontae Adams and also a quarterback Rodgers isn't he's one of the better scramblers we've seen in the last 10 years not juking guys or anything but just like put tucking it running getting the first down tucking it running getting the first down always getting just one yard past past the sticks that's the difference that we're going to see in these two weeks um from last week to this week not even comparing to week six is 
They're not going to be able to play that much man coverage. If they are, they're holding on their hats while they're doing it. And then you're scared to bring pressures. So what are the Bucks going to do? That's what I'm so curious to see. It's that I could make arguments against every coverage they want to run, but that's what awesome quarterbacks do and awesome offenses do. It's pick your poison and just hope hope that the poison that you picked isn't going to kill you. <laughs> so go into the run game, and I think this goes into another thing I want to bring up. I think that they should eject every single perimeter run into the sun. Like, j- just shoot it into the atmosphere and get it out of here because that you're playing into the speed they have on defense. Yeah. Every single time they tried to run the ball outside the, outside the tackle, White and David were all over it every single time. It, and they were just having a really hard time climbing up to the second level, which is some, typically something they're very good at, but they're so athletic on defense it became a problem. And you think, all right, well, if they're flowing that hard, let's go to the boot game. Right, that's that's how you burn them on that. And ninety eight was playing a lot in this game for Tampa Bay. He was being really undisciplined on the backside of stuff. But with JPP, he's really good at that. So it's something yep. to think about. But every single time they went to the boot game, it felt like they were bringing pressures into it. And so that was the problem: is those slot pressures against boot, it's going to blow it up. So it's yep. almost there's no good answer. My answer to this is twofold. One, by the way, in that game, Rogers four of eleven for thirty three yards on play action. Crazy. That, that's insane because of Crazy. all the other stats you put up this year off play action. So I think something that was really interesting is, so let's get the perimeter runs out of here. The one big run they hit to Williams in the first half was on uh, um, split zone. So inside zone with the tight end coming across, create some angles, and I thought that was a really good idea. I also think they could go to some play action stuff off that mm-hmm. because the tight end coming across seals the backside. So now you're not as worried about that nickel pressure or that slot pressure coming off because you have somebody right there. So I think a little, few more inside runs and then some play actions off of those inside runs might be something that they could hit that they didn't necessarily get to in the first game. Yeah, and that's my little theory. No, and and my run game stuff was they. I mean, the Bucks run defense. The Saints actually hit them a couple times and varied stuff. Like one was outside, but it was just, it was just perfect blocking. So I, I'm not going to trust every team to do that. Saints are just an outlier with that, but it seemed like the saints were trying to have lead blocks on Devin white because Devin white's a speed guy. He's a fine ball, get ball. Exactly. Guy. He has run downhill z- right at him. Zero football IQ. <laughs> he really, he has, <laughs> well, he's not, not very high in that regard, but that's what I'm actually really curious in the past game too. do LaFleur do the, it's the microscope meme from Steven Ruiz. Like is Devin White can be the coverage guy because there's times like last week, Latavius Murray runs an angle route. Devin White's just running backwards, like 20 yards, has no idea it's even like that's his coverage assignment. And he does that like once or twice a game. So, but he, he did play a good game last week. So I'm not, I don't want to take too much from him, but it is, I'm curious. That's what good quarterbacks and good offensive play callers and designers, they figure out what that weakness is and they just pound away at it. They just beat it and beat it and beat it. And also, all these varied looks that I, I've talked about Bulls runs is five stuff is that I think that's a better way sometimes to confuse uh, a quarterback or at least get them to guess, maybe second guess a guy that's so smart like Rogers is as opposed to last week when we kind of know what the Rams are going to be in, uh, at least shell wise. And then you can make some guesses what's going to what guy's going to rotate down. Having varied looks and having pressures off all of those kind of shells that the Bucks like to run, yep. at least you're not being predictable. And at least you're making them guess and you might catch. Yeah, you're going to take your blows against an offense like this. You're going to you're going to take your hits. But it's like at least you can get those plays that you're turning Rodgers into negative plays as opposed to him, a four year game where he scrambles or checks it down. And I think that's what's going to be a key. That's the one benefit from what the Bucks run on defense that they will have is at least they are varied enough that they can 
throw a little change-ups on, on Rodgers and make him slow it down. But, yeah, I, I'm curious to see if the run game could get going because last week you pointed out, too, it was the best run was a couple of plays of duo. Um, they had a couple of nice zone plays, but that's when they spread them out. And actually, I think it's a Devin White would be better in that situation if it's a spread out zone run. Uh, so that's it, that's that's curious. I'm curious to see if they. But get it was this interesting because they have the Packers do something consistently. It's one of the favorite little concepts they have. Rodgers will be in the gun, and they'll mm-hmm. have two backs. Yep. And they'll yeah. and they'll no motion Jones th- typically. Where you'll see it. Rodgers will wave his hand. Mm-hmm. Jones will come from Rodgers' left side to the right side. What they have there is they have a little RPO. With yep. an inside zone run with Dylan now is typically the other guy, or he can pitch it to Jones in the flat. Mm-hmm. The Bucks essentially say, "We'll let you have the flat." They do not send the linebacker. They they didn't at least last they don't time. Bump they yeah. didn't send the linebacker with Jones, so they're essentially saying, "We trust our guys to tackle on the perimeter. We're not giving you numbers in the box," yeah. which I think is really interesting because the Rams didn't do that. So it's just they bumped everybody out there and yes. they were saying, hey, we're going to beat you up front. And they didn't. <laughs> so that's something to watch. And I also think that's why the perimeter RPO game that the Packers like to go to when they yep. have favorable boxes didn't really work last game. The one RPO they hit that I think is something to file away. They ran a little glance route backside to Devontae. It's the type of RPO we'll see the Bills run. The Chiefs like to do it a lot where now it becomes an over the middle of the field yak play to your mm-hmm. best player. And that worked because that is an RPO that takes advantage of how quickly the Bucks vacate the middle of the field because they're so aggressive against the run. So I'll be curious to see if they go back to a couple more of those because I think that's an explosive play waiting to happen against this team. Yeah, I think. The Packers will get a couple more explosives in this game, but this is a great point because those package plays like a bubble or a smoke, it's it's taught. It always just confounds me like how Rodgers does it because those are just they're usually taught on those as hey, if you throw the bubble, if it gets four yards, that's a positive play because that's considered a good run on a rundown, you know, four yard gain. And Rodgers will just the guy will be covered. It's not the read to throw it, and he'll still throw the bubble and you know or throw the smoke because he's saying Devontae Adams is going to make a play and do all that and. That's what's funny is that this is a team that will let them have it as opposed to going like, no, no, we're not going to let him beat him out. So I, I, it's, it's curious how many of those he's going to pepper before he gets lazy with it or not lazy with it when he's like, no, I'm going to actually work. Or the coaches go, Hey, we're only getting two yards out there. And you know, Antoine Winfield screaming down and making the tackle or the corner is beating our guy on the outside. Cause he can't block him. Like you can get frustrated doing that. You're like, Hey, this, this ball is telling me to throw the the bubble. We're only getting two yards, and the O line coach is screaming, "What a great run look it is!" Like, let's see if that if they give in if they give into that. Not that I know anything about that. <laughs> All right, let's get to the other side of the ball. Oh, um, the other thing to take in mind. Excuse me before we move on. Uh, Vitavea is playing in this yeah. game, and I think that's something to consider as well. When you're favorable boxes become less favorable if you're thinking about it in terms of numbers he's like 1.7 guys who knows how healthy he'll be but it's definitely something to take into consideration because we're saying should we see more downhill runs those downhill runs sound a lot better without that guy on the field yeah and vea vea is you know his body type isn't hurt like his body might be hurt but he's still that big like you know <laughs> so you got hey you got it's like having a really big goalie at a certain point that's an advantage like he just, just blocks the whole yeah, net he's yeah. like a 1990s nhl goalie before they they changed all the rules on the pads so they're just sitting there just like blocking you know yeah but yeah vea and sue the bash brothers in there freaking what's his name uh rakeem nunez roach roaches from yeah i remember him from the chiefs rotating 
he actually played really well last week. Is that is that who you're referring to? Because he played well against the Saints. So it's like they have three big guys rotating in the middle that can just beat the F out of you. So Absolutely. And I also yeah. think the Packers offensive line did not play well last time these two teams played. No, they didn't. They had a lot of trouble with stunts, a lot of trouble passing stuff off. Jamal Williams also had a rough day in pass protection. I don't know the rules, but it did seem like he was scrambling a lot late. And yeah. I think that if you look at the how well they passed off stunts against the Rams last week and how much more comfortable they seem to be as a unit – and also, yeah. I, they were slow to the ball. Rodgers was talking about it after they played the last game. They were slow to the ball, and they were scrambling a little bit. And I think he didn't have as much time as he would like to identify certain things within protection. I think that's something that's to right. They, they had cadence off the first game, right? Yeah. That, that happened a few times. That is right. So that. it's just something to watch with him kind of extracting information. So let's go to the other side of the ball. I Outside of the notes I have about don't drop nine guys into coverage against Tom Brady, which is really my big takeaway from that last game, I don't have a ton of stuff that really jumps out to me here. What are the two or three things that you're really focusing on when the Bucks have the ball in this game? So the first, you know, the Packers more than anybody love to be in dime. Uh, they yep. they li- love, live in dime defense. They will run a little bit of nickel, but they say, you know, they stay out of base personnel as much as possible. The Bucks are a very viable 12 personnel team. They can live in two tight ends and they can rotate three legitimately stud receivers and a couple of nice role players as well at the receiver position. And I think the Bucks are just going to pound away in 12 personnel and pound away and not just running the ball, but just stay in 12 personnel and just truly let the personnel dictate what they're calling and saying like, Hey, if you want to go light against our 12 personnel, it's not like they go 12 personnel and it's a couple of, um, you know, Darren, you know, Darren Waller types, you know, guys that you're trying to hide blocking. Gronk is basically an extra tackle and Cameron Brait is a damn good blocker as well. So they like they're legit blockers in 12. And then they have a couple running backs. that will come at you. Fournette's been playing well, but, um, you know, Ronald Jones is a better player. But I think they live in this 12 personnel, run their dual, run their split zone and run their inside zone or weak side zone. And I think they live in it and dictate their whole play calling off the personnel that the Packers are going to be in. I, I truly think that's going to happen. I saw last week the Rams did it a little bit, being in 12 personnel, but then going empty. And so when you're keeping the Packers in base defense, you're putting Preston Smith, who's a Sam, but he's out in coverage as opposed to up on the ball. They were so, crushing them with it early in the game. Crushing them. And that was like the best thing they were doing. They even did it in a two-minute drill. So I'm curious. The Bucks see that and go, Let's try and keep them in base as much as possible and just keep them in base. And what's, and if like, I don't trust Preston Smith in coverage against Gronk or, or Cameron Braid even. And we have two stud receivers on the outside. We can move them around. And even Godwin and, and Johnson are plus plus blockers in the run game. So they can use, like, you know, they can get some stuff in the run game with them moving it. And that's where they can move them around. That's what's so beneficial to having them. It's almost going to be like, one of those games, you know, when Edger and James James would have like a big game for the Colts. And mm-hmm. honestly, he wouldn't, even though James was like a 4-3 guy, he would like, a lot of his runs, if you rewatch it, it's a lot of six-yard gains and seven-yard gains where Brady or uh, uh, man at Peyton was just kind of going like checking into a run and letting him eat. I think we're going to have a game like that where a lot of the run game is going to eat for five, six, seven yards a pop. Might not see any burst. You know, pack, you never know what the Packers defense though, because might yeah, see exactly. two, guys, two guys blitzing into the same gap. So hold, hold or, or the running into each other, or running into each other, or like three guys vacating an entire side. Yeah. So, you, so don't quote me on that part, but I think, I think that you're going to see the run game come 
come into play here a lot, or at least go into 12 personnel and spread it out to pass. Um, the Bucks love living, they live in empty and on second down, second along, they love being in empty. Arians always has done that. I just really think they're going to be in this 12 personnel and they're going to just let the defense dictate what they call. And I'm really, I'm really excited to see that. One little thing that I noticed, uh, Josh Jackson started in this game. Kevin King didn't play, I don't think. And uh, the Tower Johnson touchdown just roasted Kevin King on a double move to the corner. And that was just something to watch. Having, yeah. I mean, Kevin King is a great player, but he's their starter on that side. So if they get him back, you know, just one more starter back in the fold for the Packers. Would you be surprised? So in that game, it felt like they were playing a little bit more man as the game went with Alexander on Evans. And it feels like that would be a nice little change up considering how much zone the Bucks or the Packers typically like to play. I know Brady's been better against man this year than he has against zone looks, but it still feels like not wasting Alexander in some of those just soft zone defenses yeah. might be a nice little wrinkle to throw in every once in a while. Yeah, and you're never going to worry about Brady really scrambling if you're in man coverage. So yep. if you think your horse can keep up with him, like, yeah, I think also – you see a lot of pressures coming. The Bucks alliance playing fantastic right now. Um, they had so, a, they had a little bit of trouble though against some of the stunts that the Saints ran last week, and, and it's going to be great film for the Packers because it's another aggressive and, defense. You know, what I mean, <laughs> so and think about that. some of the stuff the Packers did against the Rams last week. Their best stuff was a lot of those simple twists and on one side or mirrored twists on both yeah. sides. They were, I think, that doing some of that with Zadarius Smith kind of roaming around the way that he does. I think that's the way to get them. If you're just going to line up and rush. I think you're going to have a problem because of how good they are. But if you're doing some stuff where you're trying to get your best edge guy away from worse stuff like that, I think that's where they could make some hay. I really do. I also am curious. <laughs> just notice how many screens the Bucks ran last week too. I was like, I was like, oh, uh, they probably like doubled their season total. But it's also <laughs> not as if they had a guy who could catch those. Oh my God, Fournette is just like <laughs> so frustrating. He doesn't he trip a lot more than a normal running back. I, I, every time I watch him, he just trips. I don't know what it yeah, is. I like mean, both him and Jones are fighting themselves and they're trying to catch the ball. Oh my it's, God, it, it's it's so frustrating. <laughs> it really is. What, what were you doing? What were you doing at school? Week? Like at recess? Like didn't you play catch? Like isn't that like you should be? Be like tangible hands, you know. Those two guys <laughs> and Chubb last week, just watching them try to catch the ball. It was, uh, a, it was an adventure. It was an I, adventure. I always love watching Derrick Henry try and make the football act like a beach ball. Like he's like ah, it's like, like Shaq he, shooting free yeah, throws. Yeah, he like tries out. Yeah, he like tries to catch it like like a globe or something like that. You know, the other thing. <laughs> sorry, the other thing too. I I'm curious to see is like Brady is willing to attack deep and intermediate as opposed to you know breeze but you know it was 15 yards or less so it's a little different when you have this team or even golf last week um who you know they just refuse to throw deep balls now but it, it's i'm curious to see is if they they take these shots if they're like hey we're gonna run our little play action where we pull the guard and let's hit it like we're going for it here and how many of those they try to call I don't think weather affects Brady that much, you know, if, unless it's a super windy day. He launched a ball last week about 65 yards. It was phenomenal. It was incomplete, but it was like, <laughs> it was like all of a sudden, I don't know. You know, remember the throw uh, to Moss at the end of the Super Bowl uh, uh, against the Giants? Oh, yeah, of course. That he launched like 80 yards. It was like that again. Uh, it was over the middle of the field. So it was a little less, it was not as impressive, but it was still like, whoa, okay, you can still do that. So I think there's going to be some of that where uh, they're going to go for a shot and try and wad it up and and get them a couple times. I, I do think that is something to look for too. All right, let's get to the next game here. So these teams also obviously played in week six. Chiefs won 26 to 17. A very different game from the Chiefs. The Bills more or less dared them to run. 
throughout this game, and the Chiefs were willing to oblige. CHE had 26 carries for 161 yards, and Mahomes finished with 225 passing yards. And that was essentially the exact game the Bills wanted the Chiefs to play, Yep, and they still lost. So do you see the Bills' defense deviating from a plan that saw them blitz zero times and play soft coverage with two deep safeties for most of that game? You know, it's even what kind of the Browns were doing last week. It was like, hey, we're going to try and make you beat, beat us with short throws in the run game. And as opposed to last week, which was short throws, it was this week, or week six, it was just pure run game. And it was just like the same run over and over. They ran some split zone early because uh, uh, they were trying. You'll see teams run splits on a lot, and you just described it a second ago. But splits on, you have the tight end slicing across to take advantage of off-ball linebackers and safeties maybe having bad eyes, too. Because they see that action and then go, yep. oh, 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 shoot, I actually have to hit my gap. And it's just, you know, just a little eye candy. They ran a couple end arounds or ghost plays too that also takes so advantage there was, of that. I'm curious. I want to ask you this. The biggest yeah. run that Clyde Edwards-Alaire had in that game, they had the tight – there was a split zone, but then they had the orb motion coming back. But they ran it the other way. It was almost like a fake counterplay. How would you describe that? Because it was a really long run. Yeah, it was that the one if you're looking at it – so from the end zone view, it was like to our left, I guess. It was yes, like, it was a lot yes. of action going on, right? Um, I think on that one, I I don't know what the Chiefs with the read does with those orbit motions. How I've how I've been with them is that you do you have okay, if it's bunch, say like I'm just close your eyes, it's bunched to the right. You have the tight end slicing, and then you have the end around coming that way as well. And the tight end slicing can turn into a lead block because you're usually playing games on that DN who thinks he has to, you know fit up on the tight yep. end also yep. it's like oh he gets okie doked yeah seeing the orbit motion going back the other way i think it is it's to take advantage of these off-ball linebackers it's another thing to make them go wait a sec you know just you it know, was sit. an oh shit moment yeah they exactly. were doing a lot of that stuff that's why they put emmons at eight yards deep is so he can read and react because he has to get a high and low on so many of those uh on their uh pass coverages is that he has to dictate runner pass um, you know, it's, it's not a terrible game plan to beat them. Like you're truly making yeah. them be patient and you're going to keep yourself in the game, just like the Browns did last week. And just like the bill or the bills did in week six, they kept themselves in the game. Um, but not only does Mahomes have the, you know, neck concussion stuff. Uh, he also, you know, was banged up with his foot and his toe. I know a lot of D coordinators that as soon as they know that quarterback is gimpy, here comes heat and McDermott. Yeah brings cover zero like he has his blitz he has blitzes in his back pocket that aren't too bad and i'm curious if they ju just try it if they early on they're going to test them and make mahomes see if mahomes every once in a while i mean yep. they played so passively last week and i think the two things to take into consideration with mahomes's mobility are one that do they play a little bit more man do they blitz a little bit in the ways they did before and two his ability to extend those plays, that's how zones disintegrate. They yeah. start to break down. Yep. And if he's not able to create a little bit more time for himself, then those zones, the soft zones they were playing, become even more effective. So his mobility and how much he can move is going to be a big consideration in this game, even if he's on the field. I think every single one of the blitzes they call, say they call 12 of them in the game, I think every single one of them is a Russian roulette pulling the trigger. It's just, okay, we got away with that one. Okay, we got away with that one. Okay, 80 yard touchdown. <laughs> it's like, I think that's how it's going to play out. It's like, okay, we got him. We got him to throw away there. Oh, we got a sack there. And then I think they're going to get gashed with one. It's, I, I truly do think we're going to see a lot more heat on third down um, um, from the Bills. I, I think they're going to because they seem comfortable doing it now. Yeah. They're doing it so much more often. And I just think that they're fine living in that world 
where maybe they yes. weren't as fine living in it earlier in the season. Such I mean, a great obviously, point. Obviously, you never want to blitz that much against Mahomes, but to do it zero times, I think, doesn't align with the type of defense they've been playing more often in the second half of the season. That's what I would say. It's kind of funny because uh, also another thing notice after you watch the Ravens game and then you go back to back and then you watch the Chiefs is just the O line splits. <laughs> it's just like the Chiefs <laughs> O line splits. It looks like old Texas Tech where they're like hash to hash, tackle to tackle, <laughs> and it's like and, and then watching the Ravens, they're like on each other's toes because they're getting the double teams and down blocks. So and also this week, like someone tweeted, might have just been the NFL account. Uh, about the Bucks Eagles MC championship game uh, back in the day and back in 2000. And it's funny because we're going to see like a similar structure on both sides. It's like the Eagles offense, Andy Reid, and then it was the Bucks defense and cover two. You know, that's what Leslie Frazier yeah. was a major in. They just, you know, the Bills just don't have Rondé Barber, <laughs> you know, bringing some of the stuff. And, and also, I'm curious, do we see the leak? Uh, I think, I think on purpose is, the Chiefs have not ran leak that the play that we all love on Twitter uh, in a few weeks now. And I'm really, really curious if they're just holding back on it and they're just waiting to unleash it in a playoff game when they need it. Um, so those are a couple of things I'm, I'm, I'm curious to look for. But it, it was funny when I watched that Bucks Eagles highlights and it was just wrote the Rondé Barber show. But I was like, oh, man, that's kind of the same matchup we're going to see this week and same kind of weather probably, too. <laughs> One thing I thought was really fun watching back to week six is you can just see even if they're in quarters, which is what the Bills were running more often than anything else. They're a quarters team, but they mix it up more yep. now than they would have two years ago. But in that game, they played a ton of it. But even in that four-deep zone, essentially, watching how much the zone stretches the immediately <laughs> because of the speed yes. is amazing. The quarters then, are 20 so, yards deep. It's, it's crazy. So you Sorry. watch that, and then when you, when you have Hill in the slot especially, and you're pulling those safeties back, one of the things the Chiefs were able to do multiple times in the last time these two teams played is that essentially turns into man-to-man -man with Kelsey on a linebacker underneath because there's yep. no help. And they missed it once, and they got a touchdown on it the second time. So that's something to take into consideration. You're obviously trying to have them throw shorter because of the way that you're playing, but if it's man coverage against the linebacker for Travis Kelsey, that's a that's huge advantage and an huge. explosive play waiting to happen. So I, if they go back to that, I think we'll see a lot of Kelsey working against Milano and, or Edmonds underneath. And and the cover two that they played too, you were talking about quarters too, is it was kind of funny. It was like drive by drive. They're like, okay, we're playing quarters this 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 drive. We're playing cover two this drive. We're playing man this drive in that game. And it was just funny. It was like every series they were like, okay, we're doing it this time. And, and cover two is – you're either making the quarterback check it down, which Mahomes showed last week is willing to do, or you know ad lib scramble and create the little zone areas, like you said. But also, you're making the quarterback make hero throws and and yep. backside digs and hole shots and seam balls, benders, and everything. Mahomes is one of the few guys that he could probably do that pretty consistently. So uh, I I'm curious now that if the Chiefs knowing that Andy Reid's seeing that a little more if they do have some more vertical stuff where as opposed to it's the big over routes to Hill at number three, it's more on those concepts. We talked about last week, the one by three concepts with, with Kelsey as the X Hill running the big over route, but then the dig being the number three read either coming from the number two or number one spot, either the slot or the outside receiver. Cause that's what the concept will turn into. It's almost like an over with a dagger as well. Dagger being a seam and a, and a dig be, uh, with it as well. That's a cover two beater. Uh, is Dagger is a cover two beater, and so I'm curious if Mahomes knows that 
reads Hill, gets the defense to kind of stretch out, and then just hits that dig about 18 yards to whichever receiver that they have at that time. But that, I, I think there are a couple of those are going to get hit on, on Sunday. So let's get to the other side of the ball, which I think is maybe the most interesting match of this entire weekend. And yeah. I, going back and watch that game, what a performance from Steve Spagnuolo in that defense. Like awesome. I can't remember a game this year where Allen and Dable look so out of sorts. And I talked to a play caller today who has who played against the Chiefs earlier this season, and he said one of the biggest things you have to do is you can't chase coverages against them, which is what he meant by that is you can't call plays to attack a specific coverage because they're so varied. And when you go back and you watch that game that the Chiefs played against the Bills, you know the book on Buffalo at that point in the season because Tennessee had done it was you play a lot of soft zone force him to beat you underneath. The Chiefs did some of that. You know, the first play of the game, they ran cover six. It was the first and 10, which is like, that's how you know you're not going to beat us over the top. We got two deep guys on first down. But even beyond that, they were mixing it up from series to series, from play to play. So many disguises where you just don't know what's coming. It could be man. It could be cover two. It could be this. And you have so many different things they're throwing at you with seemingly no patterns. It's not as if we're playing this on first down, we're playing this on third down. It was all over the place, and you could just tell that the Bills had zero feel for how to attack certain coverage because they had no idea what was coming in what situation. That It's so funny. My note was Spags, I think, is going to be like, he's just like a junk ball baseball pitcher now. Like, he's just throwing, <laughs> okay, that's what it is. It is, it is just junk coming at you. It was Phil Necro, like Gaylord Perry, old school style spitball coming out coming at you because that that's what he's doing it's that this the chiefs are so aggressive in a sense god that's a great quote that you you just brought up because that's that hits it right on the head because that is what it is they you can't get a tell you can't get a feel for them but so you just have to run your shit and just hope it has answers and you're hoping the quarterback finds the right thing if you're running a pass concept like spags was like feeling it that day he called a corner blitz corner cap blitz first play of a series right into a run like right into the run yep. and the corner just tackle four yard four yard loss right there basically drive over at, at that point that's when you know you're feeling it when you when that situation's going uh when the situation's happening for you but it looks like he was the chiefs do a great job because matthew is so smart he's able to really know what he's trying to get accomplished on a play that they can disguise things for so long they'll hold a look hold a look it looks like man looks like man looks like man and then right at the snap Boom, they're in cover two. And Allen in that game, he was double clutching stuff. And that game also I'm going to talk about too because I think John Feliciano is going to be my Scotty Miller or your version of Scotty That's, Miller. I, it was 100% part of this. Oh, I was my God, because that is so prevalent when you rewatch that game is how beat up the interior line for the Bills was getting. So, so as two, opposed, two things about that. One, not yeah. just beat up, but an inability to call out protections and have things solved. Anything. Because that was the biggest problem is the Chiefs blitzed half the time in this game. And if they come with something similar, Feliciano being there yes. is a huge benefit. We've talked about that. It's almost like having two centers it is. and the communication they have. So go ahead. Oh, no, but that, it's I, I can't uh, heap praise enough on on the improvement of the Bills O-line. And, and really the biggest catalyst for it was John Feliciano. And it's just it's funny. He's almost the silent MVP of the Bills. I mean, not, don't get me wrong, Diggs and He's the right guard, by the way. Yeah, he was. Not, I know. He was hurt during this game. That's how much for the people who don't know. Okay, yes, and he came back after their bye week. I think he had a torn pack, but uh, it's 
you know, having that was Allen's getting forced to double clutch. And then when your guys are getting beat right off the snap or a second after the snap and you have to double clutch everything or you're not, you're actually having to progress on a play as opposed to going, oh, I can go to one. I know one's going to be open. You actually have to go one, two, three. You can't get to that. And it just, yeah, like you said, it's this all out of sorts. And even some of the pressure Spags brought, they left a guy like wide open in a flat. But Allen yeah. was like, Allen was just not seeing it, not feeling the it. The one it, to Singletary where they ran it off and Singletary was wide open. Wide I open. think they should. I think they should try to go to a, more in this game. I think Ooh. having Singletary's release and actually not having him in pass protection and having him be an outlet instead, I think it would be a smart idea because he was open a couple times in that game. A defense bringing that much pressure um, wants you to live in six-man protection. The yep. best way to get out of it is either living in five-man either keeping the back in and releasing them or going empty or going seven man pro with a, you know, with your, with your, not a slide, do not do full slide unless it's just a bailout of jail free card, but it's tight end running back seven man protection. That used to be the best way to protect against Rex Ryan was then you wad it up and then you just gash them down the field. That's the best way to beat it. Um, what's so good. This is how good Spags is though. So they have empty checks when the offense comes out empty, every defense has bills a couple, do a ton and they do a ton. What the Chiefs do, though, is they bring these mugged-up pressure looks, even if they're not bringing pressure, and they vary who's coming. When you're in a five-man protection, sometimes with those looks, rather than try and sort it out, because it could be impossible to sort out, is you just full slide it, five-man slide it, uh, to one direction. And the quarterback just knows, if this guy comes, I'm hot. Or he just assumes that he's hot just based on the look. But what the Chiefs get to do, what Spags does so well, is he gets you to waste guys. So like a guy, you'll have guys sliding and two guys are blocking one guy and then there's two free runners coming from the opposite direction. So that is, if you take that tool away from the Bills, because that is a huge weapon for them, because Josh Allen's reading, reading games really well now. He's reading, he's reading the field really well now, but he also can use his legs to be his own check down and create more plays with his legs or ad-libbing throws. You take that away and you're just making them stay in the pocket or bringing heat on them, make them feel edgy like we talked about before. That, that's that's hard because Bills love doing that. They love being an empty. They love having their three wideouts, Dawson Knox out there, and just you know just doing shit. And when you can't do that, you actually, you're making Josh Allen be a real quarterback. And so that's really what this game's going to be is how the protection's going to hold up and how much you know is Josh Allen a real boy. <laughs> you know? it's, it's like by it's, the way, he he was like an inch away from three of the most ridiculous throws I've ever seen in my entire life. The, the last one, time these two teams played, the one he had one that I freaked out about. Oh, man, it was the one on the flea flicker, oh, where he yeah, got it hit the, and it went sixty five yards in the air and it hit John Brown in the not hands. Not just not just hit either linebacker, linebacker eight yards full head of steam like right Crushed. to the chin. Yeah, <laughs> and then he had one where he, he almost hit Diggs while moving up in the pocket, and he almost ran Diggs right he went into up the and room. right, and he did the yep. yeah, and he, he almost, almost like, he did. almost hit the goalpost. Yeah, and, but it was a, it was an amazing throw. So there were some throws on the field that he left there. The two other things I'll say before we get out of here: one, I think one of the ways, one of the tools that the Bills can use against the way that the Chiefs do some of this disguise stuff is tempo yes they do such a good job and that's been a huge part of their offense this year with their code word system and how they go up tempo i think mixing that up would be a really good way to get the bills out of or the chiefs out of some of these looks Two, surprise they didn't use more motion last time very static right very static very spread out and when you're unsure of what they're doing it just seems like one way to get a little bit more information i'll be curious to see if they do that more often and then the other thing is something I love from the Chiefs. 
I like the way the Bills wide receiving core is built. I like the players. I think that separation is king in the NFL. But guess what? They're all small. <laughs> all of them except Gabriel Davis are small. Even Stephon Diggs undersized. The Chiefs were knocking the shit out of them the entire game. And if you can – we talk about this with offense and defensive linemen a lot, where if you start taking it to guys early in the game, you find out if they want to play or not. The Chiefs did that in the secondary the first time these two teams played against each other. And now you get Snead back, so Fenton's out of there, and you get Snead as your third corner. Breland was doing a ton of that. They were mm-hmm. up in their faces, even in zone looks. They were getting really physical, and I would be shocked if we didn't see the exact same sort of approach. It's funny you bring that up because we th- usually think like, oh, they get that badass in there, and it transformed the offensive line. You know, we saw you know Kenechi and 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 or Kelechi with uh with us in uh in Oakland when he came in, it cha- transformed the whole room. Also with uh, Nelson Quentin Nelson going to the Colts transforms the whole attitude of the room. By the that's way, every- that's Feliciano for this team. Correct. That's yes, it is. It's that's what he brings. And only now just O line, but there's every position group can be like that. And yep. especially a group that has four or five guys on the field at a time, Legion of Boom Days. Like that was an attitude those guys brought. And you, a lot of these guys, when they're feeling confident, they'll they'll do that to you. And you can really punk a guy and really go like, oh shoot, uh, they're on to us. Like, you know, you you can get it's it's a human game, man. It's it's so crazy how much the human element can play into this. And that playoffs just cranks it up to 15, not even 11. It's it's way past it. And it's yeah, that's a great, great point. And I know Cole Beasley, Stefan Diggs, I'm sure they don't like that. <laughs> so we'll see if they when get you after weigh 190 pounds. That is one drawback. And it I is. think that again, there's are you saying that you prefer ball winners? Play. Are you, are you saying you prefer no, big prefer, ball winners? <laughs> shockingly, I prefer guys who get open. That, that That's my biggest thing Hey, here. big guys can do that too. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> big all guys right. need love too. <laughs> that's all we got. I am. I could not be more excited about these games. Can't Thrilled wait. to be at Lambeau to watch Brady Rogers. I mean, obviously, it's such a bummer because the conference championship games, I've always said this, are my favorite games to go to. It, it's so much better than the Super Bowl because it's atmosphere. You're at one of these buildings. And I've, yeah. I've been to... I've been at the conference championship game every single year since 2013, I think, Ooh. one of them. And I've always loved it. I've never seen one at Lambeau, and obviously it's going to be 6,000 people. So there's going to be crowd noise. And there, and one of the other things, crowd noise in Kansas City is real. It is. And that, that impacted that game. And I think that that is one area where the tempo is going to be a little bit harder than it would be in a quiet stadium if there's crowd noise and you can't communicate as easily. You know what's actually funny is sometimes tempo, though, uh, it, you're, you're correct, is sometimes it's very hard to communicate, but sometimes you can use tempo as an away team to keep, well, first off, you're keeping the long defensive play calls short so they can't get their exotic blitzes in, but you can also um, keep the crowd out of it because they don't know when to stop and start. It's hard to go, yeah. <sighs> for you know over and over for yeah. a minute and a half straight but you can use tempo and if you go on the quick to kind of go the crowd doesn't know oh they didn't break the huddle they're already lined up uh hold on uh, you know the, the video can't play the defense chant you know you can't get you know uh, uh hell's bells playing like nothing can get going like <laughs> you know the pa guy like he doesn't know tempo he's just like okay um you know all right they just broke the huddle let's play the sound cue sometimes you can use tempo to kind of keep uh keep the crowd out of the game uh if you use it right though <laughs> Something to take something to take a look at. I, I could not be more excited about these. These are two fantastic right. matchups. It's going to be awesome games. We will be coming to you guys live after the games on Sunday. 
Really looking forward to it. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would very much appreciate that. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show, three ninety nine. I'll be writing about Philip Rivers tomorrow, my beloved Philip Rivers. So if you guys want to check that out, I will be making some insane arguments about how good Philip Rivers is, and that's worth the price of a subscription on its own. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.